And if you're able, would you remain standing to honor God's Word? It comes to us from Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 through 16. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we humbly come before you now and ask that your spirit would be our teacher that these, your words, would be illumined in our hearts and and around our our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but if you are like me, it is difficult to go a full day these days without hearing someone ask this question. What is wrong with this world? What is wrong with the world? You say that, you watch TV, you watch the news, you pick up the newspaper, or you see something happen, or maybe it's your own family, or it's your own situation with friends, and you say, what in the world is wrong with this world? One of my favorite all-time movies starred Jack Nicholson. His character suffers from OCD and crippling anxiety. One day he's leaving his therapist's office, and there is a waiting room full of people with all kinds of issues. He stops and he scans the room, he looks at all of them, and he asks this question, what if this is as good as it gets? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, Paul could have written this letter to the Romans and said, suck it up, this is as good as it gets. This life, this life that you keep asking the question, what, what is wrong, what is wrong, what is wrong, why is this happening? He could have said, this is, this is as good as it gets. That would be a depressing letter. That would be a very depressing message, but he doesn't. In fact, Paul is answering the question, what is wrong with this world? We ask it in a rhetorical fashion, what's wrong with this world? Paul is going to tell us what's wrong. This is important. We need to answer this question, what is wrong with this world? There is something terribly wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So who or what is at fault? Who made this mess? Your least favorite political party? Family member. They're responsible for this mess. Parent. My parent is the one that caused all this. Young people are the cause. You know how they are. Old people. We all know how they are. I'm finding out each and every day. Years ago, and I, I've, you, you, many of you know this story because I've said it over and over again because it's so helpful, but 
Years ago, the London Times sponsored an essay writing event, and the British writer G.K. Chesterton was among those who were asked to submit an entry. Uh, the essay was to answer this question, what's wrong with the world? They said, we want to know. The London Times asked, what is wrong with the world? As it turns out, Chesterton's essay was the most succinct and to the point. This is what he wrote. Dear sirs, what is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That was his whole essay. I am. Paul's letter to the Romans, while not as succinct, essentially addresses the same question and essentially gives the exact same answer. What's wrong with the world? I am. You are. All of us are. And this is what Paul is saying over and over and over again in this section of Romans. And actually, it's all throughout this book. Sin is the problem with this world. Sin. And all of us are affected. All of us have committed sin. All of us are tainted. The world is corrupted by it. Things are broken because of it. Things aren't working the way they're supposed to be because of sin. And it catches everyone, all of us. And every time we sin, every time we break God's law, we hurt ourselves. And we hurt the neighbor. And we hurt the earth. Everything is corrupted and affected by it. James Edwards has stated, every age has its forbidden subjects. There are some things in each and every age that you just don't talk about. For the Victorians, it was sex. You, you just didn't talk about it. But for us, but for us, the taboo subject is sin. We don't talk about it. And this didn't appear overnight. It, it's been building for some 200 years now, beginning with the Enlightenment's rejection of all things unscientific, things like biblical revelation and faith, things like church tradition and authority, so we got to the 19th century, the, there were liberal thinkers, and they believed that humanity was getting better and better and better. We're evolving. We're progressing. Everything is getting better. They would say, sin, who needs it? Who needs sin? That's a theological dinosaur. Things are fine. Things are just fine, aren't they? How many of us, ask Edwards, even realize one of the most profound ironies of the 20th century is that it experienced greater evil than perhaps any century in our history. Catastrophic evils, world wars, genocide, atomic bombs, starvation, ethnic cleansing. The 20th century has, was called the, the history's most, most lethal century. And that has just compounded now in our century. It keeps going. Things are not getting better. They may, in fact, be getting worse. So to say that everything is getting better and to take away the categories to talk about what's wrong is a tragic, tragic mistake. This should concern us if we have no language to speak about what is wrong with the world. It's a great irony. There's no category for sin, no vocabulary. This is a problem. We don't even know how to talk about what is wrong with our world. Not only that, but even if we did talk about the word sin, has it not been pretty much corrupted and ruined? It really doesn't have the impact, the effect that it has anymore, that it used to have. 
I recently saw an advertisement for a dessert, a, a chocolate cake, and it <coughs> underneath it had the line, positively sinful. Right? How can something be positively sinful? If you think about it. How could that possibly be? The word has no meaning anymore. We use the word sin to describe delicious desserts. But we have a problem. We have to have language. We have to have vocabulary. We have to have an understanding of why the world is so broken. And why it seems to be compounding. And why my family won't work the way I want it to work. Why there are things inside the church and outside the church and in our world and nations. Why so much hurt, so much pain? Why brokenness? You have to answer that question. Why is this happening? What is wrong with the world? Paul wants to say that sin is the problem. He says this, all who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Paul casts the net very, very wide. To those who willingly break God's commandments, there is judgment. I know the Ten Commandments. I know what God has asked of us. I know what God expects from us. But yet I have broken those rules and that law. Judgment comes to those people. But sin, Paul says, also catches those who, who try and keep God's commandments, who are actually pretty good at it in a way, because they will be tempted to always look down on the others who aren't keeping them and say, I'm so much better. Pride enters in. And then sin enters in. And then there's this vicious, vicious cycle. Our attempts to do wrong break the law, but so do our attempts to do good often break the law. But what about those who've never heard the law? What about those in our world who've never ever heard what God expects? His laws. How could they be breaking something they'd never heard of? Paul's going to say that actually it is written on our hearts. It's deep on our, everyone's hearts. We actually do know it. Francis Schaeffer uses this illustration. He says, imagine when you were born... God places an invisible recorder device around your neck to record all of your judgments. It will record every time you tell someone what they ought to do. How many of you have been in a marriage before? Have you ever told someone what they ought to do? Not me, but in our house, sometimes that happens. What you ought to do. And so this recorder picks up all of your moral judgments, right? All of yours. When you're telling people what's right and what's wrong and why. So then someday, judgment day will come. And you'll be upset because you didn't think there was a judgment day. But that recording device will be played back. And the standards that you set for others will be revealed. Now, what God says to those folks is, fine, you didn't hear about the law, you didn't know about the law, let's just judge you according to your standards. I'll be kind, I'll be fair, I won't lay anything on you, let's just go ahead and reveal what you thought was right and wrong, and let's judge you by that. How would we do? Not very well. The point is, God is incredibly fair. Paul is reminding us that no one is going to be able to pass on Judgment Day. 
None of us. And you know what? We know it. And it drives us into despair. We know deep down that we set a moral standard. We set expectations. We give you oughts to so many different people. But deep down, we know we can't live up to it. And we haven't been living up to that standard. And that weighs us down. And it affects our relationships because there's a break with God. Then there's a break with each other. All of this is sin. Sin hurts everyone. And all of us are affected by it. This is what Paul is telling us. And then he says, because of that, therefore you and I, we have no excuse. Whoever you are, when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Jesus told a story about this once. He said two men went up to the temple one day to pray. One, a Pharisee. Pharisee was a church-going-every-Sunday type of person. Pharisee was someone who tithed, who gave a 10% of his income. A Pharisee is someone who read the Bible consistently, memorized Scripture. A Pharisee is someone that you desperately wanted to have living next door to you because they were really good model citizens. Jesus said one day this really good person went to the temple to pray. The other man who went up to the temple to pray that day was a tax collector. And a tax collector was someone who was working with Rome. This is a Jewish person who was working with the occupying country. Can you think of a traitor? And a tax collector would would be required to, to collect taxes from people for Rome, from Jews. And most often they would skim off the top and take more for themselves. This is a cheat, a traitor. Jesus says, that man went up to the temple to pray as well. The Pharisee looked over and saw him praying and, and said, God, I thank you. I'm praying to you. I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not like thieves, rogues, adulterers, and I'm most certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. That's his prayer. I'm a really good person. I'm doing all the things. I'm practicing all the things. I'm memorizing all the things. And look at that guy. He's horrible. He's terrible. I'm thankful. Thank you that you didn't make me like him. It's the prayer. But the tax collector, Jesus said, standing far off, meaning he was nervous about coming too close into the temple, coming too close because he knew who he was. He wasn't honored enough. He wasn't worthy enough. He would not even look up to heaven when he prayed. But he started beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. What's wrong with the world? I am. I've hurt my family. I've hurt my my country. I've hurt the people around me, my neighbor. I've hurt them. I know it, Lord, and I'm sorry and, and have mercy on me. 
Jesus told that story and he said, I tell you, the man went, that man, that tax collector went home justified. For all who exalt themselves, Jesus says, will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. That needs to be our posture. Humility. What's wrong with the world? I am. I've made a mess of my world many, many times. That's a a really good prayer. Lord, could you have mercy on me? Humility. You apply this to all the ethical situations we're dealing with in this world, and it's the needed balm that needs to happen. You know, um, there's a whole lot of talk in our world right now about racism. Boy, there's a lot, a lot of talk in our society about racism. And you know, the Bible condemns racism all the way throughout. All throughout. But none more than right here in Romans chapter 2. None more than this. Because if I prop myself up and say, Lord, I'm better than, or I'm more entitled than that other group for whatever reason, you see what's happening. What I'm really saying is I'm, I'm less guilty than they are. I'm more entitled than they are. That goes against what Paul's saying here. Paul says, no, you can't do that. Guilty is guilty. We're all guilty. We all are. We could never prop ourselves up over another group of people. Ever. All we can do is ask for mercy. All we can do is say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm the problem, not them. I'm the problem. All of us fall under the spell of sin. All of us have been infected. I I saw a billboard not long ago that was advertising for their church, and it had two really pretty, pretty people on it um, advertising as if to say, these are the kind of people that come to our church, really good looking. And the tagline underneath it was, where champions come to worship. We're a church of champions. Really? They must have skipped this chapter. I think about this because Mountain View, I mean, what if our, our tagline could be Mountain View Presbyterian Church, we're all guilty. Mountain View Presbyterian, we need a lot of help. Mountain View Presbyterian, we understand we, are, we created this mess. We could go on and on and on. Do you see the posture? This is what Paul is saying. This goes against the grain of a lot of our self-help and think good about yourself kind of world, therapeutic world we live in. I mean, and Paul would say that's a bunch of nonsense. Let's call it what it is, the problem. Let's talk about what's actually wrong with the world. My human heart, your human heart, and all of us have fallen under this spell. I am going to be judged. You're going to be judged. We are guilty. We're guilty under the law. We're guilty apart from the law. I have sinned. I will be judged. That's not in question according to Paul. And so the issue then therefore becomes, what is the character of the judge? That's the real issue. If we're going to be judged, if we're all guilty... What is the judge's character? What is the judge like? 
Is he tough? Is he harsh? Is he brutal? How are we going to be judged? This is what Paul says. Do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Buried right here in all this talk about guilt and the widespread and all of our involvement in it, suddenly Paul's talking about the judge's kindness and forbearance and patience. If you and I were to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court, you hear that phrase, we say that phrase, if we threw ourselves on the mercy of the court, how would the judge respond? Jesus already told us that, right? One went home justified. One went home knowing he'd done the right thing. He prayed the right prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If that's our posture, we're going to find this judge is kind, patient. I was reading a few years ago, the New York Times ran a series of articles on crime in modern Japan. For every 100,000 citizens in the United States, 519 are imprisoned. For every 100,000 citizens in Japan, 37 are imprisoned. It's pretty remarkable. And so in search of the answers to this, I mean, what are they doing in that culture? What are they doing to not have as much crime? So they sent a reporter to interview a Japanese man who had just served a sentence, long, long sentence for murder. In the 15 years he spent in prison, he did not receive a single visitor. After his relief, after his release, his wife and son met with him only to tell him, do not ever contact us ever again, and do not return to this village. His three daughters, now married, refused to see him. He says, I have four grandchildren. I think, the man said sadly, he's never seen pictures of them. It's a shame culture. Sometimes men who get fired from their jobs have so much shame, they never they disappear. They never return home. The judgment is harsh, severe, and it's met with shame. Their wrongdoing is met with a whole mountain of it. Is that what we find with our God? We're all guilty. Compare that with the experience of a man named Nathaniel. When Nathaniel, a heartbroken man, went home one day, to tell his wife that he was a failure. He returned home knowing that he had been fired from his job. He'd been fired from a custom house and he went thinking, how is she going to respond? He was downcast. I've, I'm a failure. I'm guilty. I've lost my job. Not knowing how she would respond. She surprised him with an exclamation of joy. Now, she said, Triumphantly, now you can write your book. Yes, replied Nathaniel with a sagging confidence. And what shall we live on while I'm writing my book? To his amazement, she opened a drawer and pulled out a substantial amount of money. Where on earth did you get that? He exclaimed. She said, Well, I have always known that you were a man of genius. 
I, I knew that someday you would write a masterpiece. So every week out of the money, the allowance that you gave me for housekeeping, I would hold back and save a little bit. So here's enough for us to live on for a whole year. From Sophia's trust and confidence came one of the greatest novels of American literature, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. What happens when we approach the judge and say, I'm guilty, I'm a failure, it's my fault, I'm at wrong, I know it. What happens? What happens when we, we throw ourselves on the mercy of the court? Say, I'm a mess, Lord. Hurt others. I'm a big part of the problem here. I need to confess these things. What happens? That's what Paul's going to tell us about next week. Let us pray. Lord, help us to have the courage, the humility, not to point the finger and say, I'm so glad I'm not like them, but to say, I'm part of the problem. I need your mercy, Lord. We need your mercy. We as a church need to be honest and get really good at confessing, realizing who we are in our relation to this world. But mostly we need to learn more about your character, your good character that is kind, patient. Help us to live in those spaces this week. We humbly pray in Jesus' name.